I'm back. That's right. The weird imposter is gone from last year or last week. Um, all right. So I have a few announcements that I do want to pass along to you. Um, I know that uh, hopefully this will be finding everyone, whether you're at home or here, because there's lots going on that we'd like you to know of, uh, especially uh, next week's plans, which I'll go into at the very end of my announcement time to make sure everybody's clear on what's happening next week. Uh, but for now, I want to start by talking about Operation Christmas Child. Uh, collection week is only a few weeks away. Uh, there's been lots of information that's been going out about that, that on Facebook as well as emails. Uh, I would con- continue to encourage you to bring items in for our packing party or pack your own boxes, and there's information on the back table. And as always, if you have any questions about Operation Christmas Child, whether it's about packing a box or whether it's about uh, the collection times or anything like that, you can always talk to my wife. She is on point with that. And in saying that, she's also hosting a meeting right after church today. And the meeting is for anybody that's going to feel like they want to help with collection times. So collections times, basically, you sit and you wait for other churches to bring their boxes, and then you pack them into bigger boxes. Uh, it's uh, kind of a fun time. You get to hang out and wait for people. Sometimes you're really busy, and sometimes you just sit around. Uh, but it gives you good time to fellowship with whoever else is with you. So if you want to sign up for that, talk to Felicia, or you can sign up online, or just show up to the meeting right after service. It's going to be held out in the gymnasium. Uh, so make sure if you want to be... in involved in Operation Christmas Child uh, packing and that kind of thing to see her in the gym after service today. I do also have an announcement from Gwen about an upcoming ladies event. So I'm just going to read what she has written. Ladies, Refresh is having a ladies night out on Friday, November 20th at 6 p.m. right here at the church. Uh, You'll be making Advent wreaths and they're asking for $5 donations towards supplies. Please RSVP by Wednesday, November 11th. Sign up in the back or you can talk to Gwen directly. Help stock the local food pantry also by bringing a baking supply or Thanksgiving dinner item. So that's coming up on the 20th. If you have any more questions about that, please talk to Gwen. Um, And... We are, this coming Saturday, some of you are aware of this, we are having a membership class. It's going to start at 9 in the morning, and it's going to go right through lunch, and we'll have lunch at the end. Um, and if you are interested in becoming a member at our church, maybe you've been a regular attender for a long time, maybe you just started attending, but you'd like to find out more about what it means to be a member, how it, what it means to officially uh, be recognized in the membership of this church. It's nothing magical, but it is something that creates an opportunity for connection and accountability. Uh, So we would ask that maybe you might be interested in that. If you are interested in that, please come talk to me. Uh, That is the way you can sign up, is to talk to me directly. Uh, And also, I will have uh, application and some different things that you will need. So talk to me today. Uh, If you are in the class and you have not received a constitution and an application, please see me today as well if I don't find you first. So that is next Saturday. Anyone is welcome. Even if you just say, I just want to find out more about what being a member is, but you're not sure if you really are ready, go ahead and check it out. Just let me know if you're going to come. All right, finally, as I said, we're going to talk about next week's plans. Many of you know that next week is going to be a very unique service. Uh, Justin's been talking about it. We've been mentioning it from uh, different places. But next week, as we're continuing on with the marriage and sexuality uh, series, we're going to specifically be talking about pornography. And this is a very tricky subject in some ways because it's very pervasive in our world and it's very hard to talk about it at the same time. But we do want to address this issue but in order to do that well and to do that responsibly, we, we, we really want to divide the genders for that talk. 
So many sensitive things will be talked about. What we're going to do is next week, when, we are, when it is time at the 11 o'clock hour for our services, the women will be in here in the auditorium. And there are some women that will be speaking to you uh, about the dangers of pornography and how to protect others from it and all those different things. And then the men, though, are going to be meeting in the gymnasium. Uh, so right after our singing, we'll be setting up some chairs so that the men can be out in the gym uh, where we'll be sharing about how to fight the battle with pornography out there. So we would encourage you to come. I know it's going to be strange. Now, here's the thing. If you're online or if you're planning on not being here next week but you want to engage online, we are not going to be live streaming either part of the services. In fact, we're not going to be videoing either of them either just because of the sensitive content that will be in there. However, we will be recording them with audio, so if you wish for a recording, it's going to be by request only, and you can request the audio by contacting myself or Pastor Justin, and we will get you the recording in some way, shape, or form. We're not exactly sure what that looks like yet, but it will be by request only. So that's how next week's going to work. If you have any more questions about that, talk to any of the elders. Uh, We can give you some instruction as far as what's going on next week. Uh, but that will be a different service, but we're hoping that you will consider joining us uh, as it is an important topic to cover. All right, so with all that being said, those are my announcements. We'll have a little bit of time of music before the sermon comes. But until that time, if you do have kids, we would encourage you now to take them downstairs to Junior Church. Thanks.
Why don't we pray together and we'll begin our time. Father, we call on you for help. Thank you that you are here with us. We want to express our dependence on you for strength. We want to declare our dependence on you for freedom. We want to have confidence in the good things that you are doing. So help us. Help us see with eyes that go well beyond what our eyeballs can perceive. Help us to see your good hand of blessing upon your people. Help us to rest in you. As we open your word now, Father, would you speak clearly and powerfully into our hearts, bring transformation where it's needed, bring healing where there have been wounds and brokenness, bring salvation where there is death and darkness. Thank you that you have the power to do all of those things through your word. So would you speak in a way that changes us? Would you speak in a way that gives life this morning? Would you help us know you better and help us to live more faithfully in light of what we see and what we hear, what we read in your word? So thank you. Thank you, Father, for the good work that you're doing and the good work you're going to do. Help us to trust you well. Help us to turn away from our sin Repent wherever we need it. Give us grace, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this year, I recorded a devotional video highlighting my frustration with the concept of literal interpretation when it comes to reading the Bible. When people ask me, do you interpret the Bible literally? My first thought turns to the Song of Songs. To interpret the Song of Songs literally would be a meaningless disaster, an exercise in absurdity. Let me show you what I mean. Last week we looked at Song 5, 10 to 16, where Shulamite describes the shepherd with a variety of poetic imagery. If we interpreted that literally, someone has sketched out what that would look like. You can see it up on the screen, and you've got it there in your sermon notes as well, that is an illustration of what she looks like, if you take his description literally. Likewise, the shepherd describes Shulamite's body in chapter 7, and if we interpreted that literally, this is what she would look like on the next slide or on the other side of that page. Or, we'll see today how Shulamite is characterized as a garden this morning, and thinking literally, my first thought went to this next image from Disney's Moana. My daughter loves this movie, and so her father dutifully has watched it hundreds of times over the past couple of years, which means its images are deeply embedded in my brain. To interpret the Bible literally is often to interpret the Bible simplistically, not reading it as God intended it to be read, and therefore missing out on both the incomparable work of art that it is, and also to miss the intended message God has communicated for us. The alternative to interpreting the Bible literally is to interpret the Bible literarily, 
to seek out the author's intention in every passage, every verse, every book, and also in the whole collection as it's been put together as God's Spirit-produced message for us, His people. This allows us as readers to recognize and properly appreciate figurative language wherever it's utilized. In the Song of Songs, we must deal with the poetry and the figurative presentations. That means we have to do the hard cultural background work of figuring out what ancient people understood when using metaphors and making comparisons to things in the natural world. We have to pay close attention to how they might be drawing on other realities described or elsewhere in Scripture to communicate a larger theological message than might be plain on a first-time cursory reading of any given passage or book. For example, we saw last week how Shulamite draws, Shulamite draws on imagery from the temple to describe the shepherd in such a way as to communicate his grandeur in her eyes and how she views him as leading her to worship the Lord in and through their marriage and their sexual intimacy. Today, we'll see how the shepherd does something similar as he describes and adores his wife's body. But first, let's consider how the couple together describe their wedding night. How does the couple describe the wedding night? First, Shulamite describes the wedding night in her dream, Song 4.16. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. We talked about this verse a little bit last week. She depicts her body as a garden, and she's calling on the winds to blow on her garden, basically saying that she's ready for the consummation of their marriage, and she's wanting her body to be alive and fruitful for her husband. She invites him to eat and the most excellent fruit produced by her garden. In her dream about their wedding night, she sees herself welcoming him, inviting him to enter her body, to explore her body, and to receive maximum pleasure from her body. In the next verse, the shepherd speaks in her dream, and he seems to be responding after their sexual encounter is ended. She invited, he entered, and now he summarizes, Song 5.1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. He metaphorically describes the sexual encounter on their wedding night with four verbs. Came, gathered, ate, and drank. Notice also the possessive pronoun used repeatedly. My. Shulamite has given her garden, her body, to her husband as a gift. She belongs to him now. He first says, I came to my garden. He has entered her body, joined with her for the first time. The Hebrew verb translated gathered literally refers to plucking fruit. He is poetically describing how his hands were involved. Ate and drank metaphorically depict his mouth's involvement. Myrrh and spice give the sense of aromas, the scents he enjoyed, perhaps from the perfume she was wearing. Honeycomb and honey reflect the sweet pleasure he found in connecting sexually with his bride. The combination of milk and wine is interesting in that it appears elsewhere in two prophetic texts, 
both pointing to the future new Jerusalem, Isaiah 55.1 and Joel 3.18. As we mentioned last week, wine is regularly said to bring joy to those who consume it responsibly, and therefore it is also an appropriate symbol for the greatest of all joys. Thus we see wine associated here with sex, and in many prophetic texts we see wine associated with the new Jerusalem, or the new creation, or God's great work of salvation. While both wine and milk would have been considered staples in ancient Israel, goat's milk in particular would have been a common drink for people. Unlike water, however, milk was recognized as a particularly rich and nourishing beverage. So here, the shepherd describes his sexual union with his wife in terms of the richest joy and the profoundest nourishment. The experience of sexual union is intended to produce joy for both spouses and intended to enrich and cultivate health in the marriage. And we get a hint here of what we've seen elsewhere. Sexual intimacy in marriage is intended to point toward the full experience of intimacy we will have with Jesus in the new creation. But another voice speaks to the couple at the end of verse 1. The daughters of Jerusalem speak to affirm the couple in their pursuit of sexual intimacy and sexual expression in marriage. Look at the end of Song 5.1. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Fitting with the shepherd's description of their consummation of the marriage, the daughters of Jerusalem encourage them to keep feasting. The Hebrew word translated love here is, as should be expected, the word for sexual erotic love. If Shulamite, in her addresses to the daughters of Jerusalem, communicates the warning message of this song, repeatedly warning them about the dangers of mishandling their sexuality, here the daughters of Jerusalem get to respond with the other side of the main message of this song, encouraging the full enjoyment of sexual intimacy by a husband and wife joined together by God in the covenant of marriage. They go to the extreme, in fact, encouraging the couple to become intoxicated in the midst of sexual pleasure, become unbridled in the bedroom. Here, King Solomon's instruction to his son in Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 is surely appropriate. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Here we do see wise King Solomon passing on spirit-inspired wisdom to his son. If only Solomon himself could have remained faithful to this wisdom. In any case, in Shulamite's dream, anticipating her wedding night, she hears the community encouraging the married couple to let the flames of passion burn in the safe space of the marriage fireplace. And let's move into Song 7, where we'll hear Shulamite, perhaps early on her wedding day, anticipating the wedding night before describing it ever so briefly and simply in Song 8.5. So here's the wedding day and night, Song 7.11 and reading through 8.3. Shulamite anticipates the wedding night. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. 
The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. In verses 11 and 12, Shulamite invites her beloved shepherd to step outside to see if springtime has really come. This is all part of the imagery. She's basically saying, is it really time to awaken love? The shepherd already told her all the way back in Song 2, verses 10 to 13, that the time was approaching, had come. Look at those verses, Song 2, 10 to 13. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Perhaps he said that a couple of days before the actual wedding. Now, on the day of the wedding, she finally responds to the invitation and says, Yes, let's go outside and enjoy the fullness of spring. At the end of Song 7.12, she adds, There, I will give you my love, my sexual love. Then she mentions mandrakes in verse 13, which were known to be an aphrodisiac in the ancient world. Apparently, their aroma could enhance sexual arousal. Interestingly, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word translated mandrakes also sounds similar to the Hebrew word dode that refers to sexual love. At the end of verse 13, she reminds her beloved shepherd that she has kept herself pure, preserved her body and her sexuality for him and him alone all the way up to their wedding day. Now, Song 8-1 is a bit puzzling for us modern Western Americans. Apparently, in ancient Israel, public displays of affection for married couples were not viewed as particularly appropriate, but kissing between siblings was publicly acceptable. Her point, then, would be to express, again, her deep desire to show affection to him. And then she immediately speaks of her desire again to take him into the privacy of her old home, where she says, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate, metaphors by which she communicates her desire and intention to give him sexual pleasure. In verse 3, we should probably understand her as expressing her earnest desire, as in the New American Standard Bible, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Then in the second half of verse 5, she poetically describes their sexual encounter. Song 8-5, Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Just three Hebrew words to say, Under the apple tree I awakened you. In verse 4, we heard the last warning to the daughters of Jerusalem that they might swear not to awaken love until it pleases. Now, she says that she has awakened her beloved shepherd. 
Earlier, she described her beloved as an apple tree, and now she describes their sexual encounter as happening under an apple tree. This is similar to how Shulamite is characterized sometimes as a garden and sometimes as in a garden. She's not describing the literal location of their wedding night. Instead, she's characterizing it as a fruitful place. She's hoping and longing for fruitfulness. And so she may be even thinking about the conception of children, that hope, but also that it would be fruitful in terms of their mutual enjoyment. As I mentioned two weeks ago, their first actual sexual encounter is too intimate and private to be described with any further detail. Now, so far, we've been hearing mostly from Shulamite, and she does speak most in the song, but today we want to get an understanding of how the shepherd expresses his sexuality as well. So, parallel to last week's message, we need to consider how, how he both addresses her and also describes her. What can we learn about biblical masculine sexuality? How does the shepherd address Shulamite first? He refers to her several times as my love. An example, Song 115. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. This is a unique Hebrew word used only in the Song of Songs in the Bible. The best English equivalent would probably be my lover in order to capture the intimacy he's seeking to characterize with this term of endearment. It's in the family of words that describes friendship and companionship. This word that the shepherd uses nine times to address Shulamite is a word that describes the closest intimacy, but doesn't just focus on sexual intimacy. Also, the word is spelled almost exactly the same and pronounced very similarly to the Hebrew word for shepherd. She is his shepherdess, if you will. Next four times, he refers to her as my sister, my bride, or my sister bride. Consider Song 4.10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. In Shulamite's dream, the shepherd describes her sexual love as beautiful and better than wine, parallel to how she had described his sexual love as better than wine back in Song 1-2. But then he refers to her as my sister, and I wonder if you get a little weirded out by that. It probably doesn't help that you could put the two terms together when they're next to each other like this and translate the phrase as my sister bride or my sister wife. How are we to understand this in the greatest song? There's plenty of evidence in the ancient world from Egyptian love poetry as well as from ancient Semitic literature more broadly that the word for sister can be a kind of pet name for one's wife or bride-to-be. As strange as it is to our modern ears, we need only recognize that the shepherd is essentially calling her sweetheart. I think the reason sister could be an appropriate term of endearment is because it refers to the closest female relative in one's family. At any rate, it combines, he combines it with the word bride, which can refer to a bride-to-be or a betrothed person. Next, in that same context, in the midst of Shulamite's dream, after they've connected sexually for the first time in the dream, the shepherd is inexplicably outside the house again, asking her to be let in. He addresses her through the locked door in the second half of Song 5-2, and he refers to her as my dove, my perfect one. Song 5-2. O 
Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. In addition to my sister and my love, which we've talked about, he adds two more descriptive phrases, my dove, my perfect one. Shulamite had compared the shepherd's eyes to doves, by which she probably commented simply on the color, the whiteness of his eyes, or maybe the shape of his eyes. And she also referred to him as my dove in Song 2.14. He makes the same comparison with her eyes a couple of times, but he refers to her here as my dove, my perfect one, twice in her dream. It seems that they both have eyes like doves in some way, and both of them may be characterized as a dove. Whatever could this mean? Throughout the ancient world, doves were symbols of fertility and procreation, so perhaps they're merely associating each other with doves to communicate that they are two lovebirds who are perfectly matched with each other. He also refers to her as my perfect one in these verses. The term describes her integrity her completeness, and her moral purity. To this shepherd, she's simply in a class by herself. None can compare with her in his eyes. Finally, we can move over to Song 7-1, where he refers to her with another family word, noble daughter. Song 7-1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. We should focus on the word noble, but the meaning of this word is difficult to pin down. Crucially, however, let me highlight the fact that this word is not about her appearance. Even though this address comes at the beginning of what will be a poem praising her naked body, he addresses her not as hot or sexy, but rather as noble. The word can have connotations of generosity. We tend to think of nobility as akin to royalty or high dignity, and that's right, but For them in the ancient world, one of the character traits that would make royalty worth respecting would be their willingness to serve their people. That, I think, is what the shepherd is drawing our attention to. He is praising his bride on their wedding night as profoundly generous as she prepares to give herself fully to him. So how does the shepherd then describe Shulamite? Well, several different strategies or avenues. First, he just uses some simple adjectives, some descriptive words, beautiful and lovely. The shepherd simply describes Shulamite as beautiful 12 times in this song. Considering that the shepherd's words are far fewer than Shulamite's, he's kind of stuck on this one word, beautiful. We might wish he'd be a bit more creative. As we'll see in a moment, he's not lacking in the creativity department, even if he is a bit repetitive. In fact, we might realize that he's actually figured out a secret that too many men, including this one standing right here, are very slow to learn. Our wives might just like hearing the same praise, the same verbal expressions of affection over and over and over again. We've all heard the joke, at least I hope it's a joke, where a husband married for many years is shocked to hear from his wife or from his marriage counselor that she doesn't think he loves her anymore, to which he responds in exasperation, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. Do you need to hear it again? Yes. Yes, she does. And to fairly flip the ship, don't you men feel something 
Even if you can't put words to it, when your wife speaks wondrous words of affirmation, we need to learn the importance of repeated verbal affirmation in our marriages, both husbands and wives. In addition to beautiful, the shepherd describes Shulamite as lovely five times. She used this word to describe herself in chapter 1, but he affirms her with this word. She is utterly desirable to him. Now, we could view these expressions as understandable and appropriate from a young man getting ready for marriage. But maybe it's harder for some husbands who've been married for a while, whose wives have gotten a bit older, whose bodies have changed due to pregnancy or age, to think they could keep pouring on these compliments with full honesty. If that's where you are, men, may I gently call on you to repent. Husbands, this song is in the Bible for its timeless truth, its timeless message that sets the God-designed model for husbands to continue cultivating affection for their wives. This is not just about young bucks getting ready to marry their high school sweethearts. Part of that is having such a high view of your wife's body that there is no standard of comparison, whether her own body 20 years ago or any other female body. No, to you, your wife must be the most beautiful woman on the planet right now. And you need to be able to honestly say that today, tomorrow, and all the days that you are married. Never put yourself in the place of evaluating any other woman as more beautiful, more desirable, more attractive, hotter, sexier, or whatever other adjectives you'd like to use than your wife today. Period. And, and wives, the same goes for you toward your husband. But as I said, the shepherd is quite creative in his characterization of Shulamite. Beyond the simple adjectives of beautiful and lovely, he uses metaphors and comparisons to good effect. Take a look at Song 4, 11 to 15. He plays with the metaphors of garden, spring, and fountain. Song 4, 11 to 15. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. In these verses... Shulamite hears her beloved shepherd characterize her as an elaborate garden filled with a variety of aromas and tastes and visual splendors. Her lips are depicted as a honeycomb overloaded with the sweetest honey so that the honey can be seen flowing outward. And the taste of her kisses is a powerful blend of richness like milk and sweetness like honey. Her clothes smell fresh and sweet like the Lebanon forest. But he characterizes her whole body as a locked garden, a locked spring, and a closed-off fountain. Prior to their marriage, the full delights of her body are held back 
off limits until the covenant is established and formalized in the presence of God and human witnesses. The word translated orchard in verse 13 in the ESV is a non-Hebrew word. It's a word that describes a courtyard or a park. And it's the ancient root of our English word, paradise. He describes our body as an exotic greenhouse full of wild spices and excellent fruits. But he concludes this metaphorical depiction of her as a life-giving water source. The shepherd also utilizes a variety of comparisons in his praise of Shulamite. Consider the following. Song 1-9. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. The horses in ancient Egyptian armies were famous for their decorations. They are often depicted with colorful headdresses covered in gemstones and colorful blankets on their backs with colorful tassels hanging down underneath their bellies. In verse 10, the shepherd comments specifically on some of her jewelry choices, and he sees this ornamentation as drawing out and enhancing her beauty. And we might wonder if this pushes up into a tension with Peter's instruction to Christian wives in 1 Peter 3.3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. However, I think the New American Standard Bible is right to suggest that Peter implies the word merely in his instruction. Your adornment must not be merely external. It's not inherently sinful or ungodly for women to wear jewelry. Peter's warning is about identity. You can dress nice, get dolled up, and wear jewelry if you want to, but don't be known for it. When people think of you, you don't want the first thing they think of to be your wardrobe, jewelry, or the brands you wear. So the shepherd is right to praise his lovely Shulamite for her adornment. Next, he picks up on something Shulamite said about herself. We looked at Song 2-1 last week, where she referred to herself as a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, and I suggested that she's confidently asserting her own beauty and uniqueness. Look at how the shepherd responds in Song 2-2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Not only is she a lovely lily, but it's as though all the other women in the world are thorn bushes. Husbands, think of your wives this way. No one else should measure up in your mind, in your eyes, to the beauty of your wife. Be captivated by her beauty always. Look at Song 6-4. You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Three comparisons here. First, he says she's as beautiful as the city of Tirzah a city in northern Israel during Solomon's reign that would become the first capital city of the divided kingdom under Solomon's son. The city's name is related to a Hebrew word that means pleasant or pleasurable or delightful. Then he compares her with the greater city, Jerusalem, where the temple is. And the city's name, Jerusalem, is related to Shulamite. It is the city of peace, the city of Shalom. But the third comparison is interesting as well. Awesome as an army with banners. He'll repeat this comparison in Song 6.10. She is awesome in the sense of awe-inspiring. She commands respect 
This has to do with more than just her appearance. The daughters of Jerusalem listen to her counsel throughout this song. That indicates that she's recognized as wise, respected as a teacher. An army with banners refers specifically to an army that's just won a great victory. They fly their flags, announcing their conquest. She has made a great conquest over this shepherd's heart. Now drop down to verse 10, Song 610. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Shulamite is like the beams of the sun at dawn, setting the world ablaze with light. And her beauty is like the brightness of the full moon, This is not strictly about appearance. The word that he chooses has to do with the whiteness of the moon when it's full. And she has described herself as just the opposite, black-skinned. Night and day, the shepherd's point is, night and day she fills the shepherd with light. Finally, and perhaps most famously, the shepherd provides four separate praise poems focused on the physical beauty of Shulamite. We're going to look at all four rather quickly. Four physical praise poems. The first one in Song 4, verses 1 to 5. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors." Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Shulamite dreams of her wedding night, and she describes her husband's approach on their wedding night. The shepherd praises her body, starting at the top and moving downward. He highlights her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her lips, her mouth, her cheeks, her neck, and her breasts. And he stops there. First, Her eyes are described as doves, shyly hidden behind her veil. Eyes are mentioned very frequently throughout this song. There's a greater focus on the eyes than on any other part of the body in this song. As mentioned earlier, it's hard to pin down exactly how the eyes are dove-like. It could be a reference to shape or color or even the fluttering movement of her eyes. Next, he compares her hair to a flock of goats leaping down alongside the mountains. It's a rather creative image to depict her hair flowing wavily alongside her head. Third, her teeth. They're clean, they're white, and none are missing. (laughs) Would you be surprised to know how rare that was in the ancient world? Next, her lips are thin and red, and her mouth is just lovely. Now, the word he chooses for mouth is interesting here. It's a word that specifically refers to the mouth as the source of speech. So he may not be talking strictly about the appearance of her mouth, but instead he's drawing attention to the loveliness of her speech. He delights to hear her talk. We'll see that again later, a fact not to be missed. Her cheeks are symmetrical and sweet, 
Her neck is long and elegant like a great castle tower, and the necklaces she wears make it look like a well-fortified castle. Here he's again speaking about more than just her appearance, I think. Rather, he's saying that she is like a well-defended city, impenetrable to invaders. She has preserved her body, her sexuality, her virginity quite effectively. Finally, his attention settles on her breasts, and he describes them metaphorically as twin baby gazelles. One writer suggests the significance of this metaphor. Fawns are shy and rarely observed, while gazelles are graceful. Now, the shepherd is not in any way being, being vulgar or inappropriate in his references to Shulamite's breasts. It does seem to be the case that in the ancient world, people were more comfortable referring to women's breasts in a way that wasn't lewd or objectifying. We are probably wise in our culture to restrain our public comments more than the shepherd does, and so we shall. Let's press on to Song 6, 5, and five to 7. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Shulamite continues describing her dream, and she again receives the praises of her husband after she's dreamed of their wedding night. The shepherd focuses on her face in these verses, describing her eyes, her hair, her teeth, and her cheeks with some repetition from chapter 4, so we won't go over that uh, again. Instead, let's move on to song 7, 1 to 5. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. Here, I think, we are really hearing from the shepherd on the wedding night. As Shulamite disrobes in front of him for the first time, he praises her, this time starting from the bottom and moving upward. He delights in her feet, her thighs, her navel, her belly, her breasts. And this time he doesn't stop there. He keeps moving up to her neck, her eyes, her nose, her head, and the locks of her hair. Ten aspects of her body thrill him. And he tells her so, quite specifically. He begins with her feet. But the word he uses is not strictly her feet, but the steps she takes with her feet. He's highlighting the beauty of her movement, the gracefulness of her steps in sandaled feet. Now notice that sandals are the only item of clothing mentioned here. Apparently that's all she's wearing at this point. He then moves upward comparing her thighs to jewels. Now, I don't think he means that she's got sparkly legs. Rather, her thighs are the product of a skilled craftsman, the way that a gemstone might be worked into a beautiful setting. Notice the reference to the work of a master hand. As the shepherd praises her curve, 
works. He gives credit to the great craftsman, God himself. As one writer puts it, the unforgettable curves of a desirable body are thanks to God. What an attractive way to state the doctrine of creation. Husbands, have you ever thanked the Lord for the beauty of your wife's body? Have you ever done so out loud in front of your wife? Me neither. (laughs) Professor Walt Kaiser rightly says, The praise the couple offers for one another's physique is a true description of their God-given appreciation and praise to our Lord for the beauty and the excellence of our Lord's work. Thus the shepherd continues his praise, moving upward to her navel, her belly button, which he compares to a deep round bowl full of mixed wine. So apparently she's an innie rather than an outie. (laughs) Seeing her exposed tummy delights him. That seems to be the point. He comments next on her belly. Now, the word translated belly is often a reference to the woman's womb. The word can refer to the inside of the belly or the outside of the belly. He sees her belly as metaphorically a heap or a granary full of wheat with lilies all around. That is to say that her womb is nourishing and life-giving. Next, he returns to admiring her breasts using the same imagery Shulamite dreamed he would earlier. The shepherd doesn't stop at her breasts, as Shulamite dreamed that he might. Instead, he gives a full-bodied praise, noting five parts of her lower body and then five parts of her upper body. He is expressing his delight in her whole person, not just as a sexual object. As in the dream, her neck is compared to an ivory tower, indicating her dignity and elegance. Next, her eyes are clear and perhaps shimmering with moisture. Comparing her nose with another tower, well, that seems like risky business to me. (laughs) He's suggesting that she's got a long, pointy nose. Or, and this is a wild guess that I've never heard anybody suggest, is he speaking of her being slow to anger? In the Bible, very often, the nose is the word for anger. And when... Someone is described as being slow to anger, like God. The phrase literally is, long of nose. Or, more simply, perhaps a prominent nose was an attractive feature in the ancient world. I don't know. Finally, he says, her head sits atop her majestic body like a glorious crown, like a beautiful snow-capped mountain, and her hair flows downward like purple. No, I I don't think she dyed her hair literally purple. Rather, purple was a color of royalty, and he's trying to express how valuable her hair is. The last line of verse 5 is curious. It depicts even a king, like King Solomon, getting all tangled up in the ribbons of her hair. This shepherd, and maybe King Solomon from a distance, is utterly entangled, utterly enthralled by this woman And the shepherd tells her so with wondrous poetry. Finally, let's take a quick glance at verses 6 to 9. Song 7, 6 to 9. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. 
Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Now, instead of a garden to enter and enjoy, he depicts her as a palm tree he would like to climb in order to reach its clusters of dates and clusters of grapes. And her breath is sweet like apples, and the inside of her mouth tastes like the best wine. He sees his wife as full of delights, a word for luxurious pleasure and pampering. This is not objectifying lust. This is the sweet enjoyment of the consummation of a secure love. This is naked and not ashamed, pursuing maximum pleasure in the beloved. If we leave it there, it will be difficult to keep the full picture in mind, however. It's not all about sex. Let's see what else the shepherd values about Shulamite quickly. First, her purity, Song 6-9. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure, to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. In Shulamite's dream, he notes her purity specifically, as well as her excellent reputation, even among King Solomon's harem. But there's also her presence and companionship. Several times, he invites her to go somewhere with him. Look at Song 2.10. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. That's repeated verbatim in verse 13. And then in verse 14, Song 2.14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. And then in Song 4.8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. He just wants to be with her, to see her face. Finally, as I've already hinted, he values her words, her conversation. Song 2.14. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Song 8, 13. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. This is the last word we hear from the shepherd, an earnest desire to hear the voice of his wife. O husbands, do you want to hear what your wife has to say all the time? Do you value her words? Do you want to listen to her voice just for the sake of hearing her heart. Let that be a challenge for you men. Well, to conclude, let's consider the theological message of this song again. And we'll take a look at the bride, the land, and the new Jerusalem. As we've glanced at these fascinating words, we've heard the shepherd praising his bride with all manner of figurative language. But did you notice how geographical it all was. You can see a map on the screen of most of the places that were mentioned. I couldn't find one that had all of them on there. I count 12 specific places mentioned in the song, and 11 of them are noted in relationship to Shulamite. In addition to specific place names, the shepherd compares her neck to a particular tower, the Tower of David, and her breasts to mountains in a couple of places. As one writer summarizes, it seems like the woman's body is viewed by her lover as a landscape, a lush vista of a beautiful country where he is free to roam. But of course, it's not just any land. 
It's specifically the land of Israel. Did you notice the references to honey and milk in a few places? Did that make you think of the descriptions of the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey? But Shulamite is also a garden and even a vineyard. She depicts herself as the Garden of Eden. And she also depicts herself as a vineyard. It's hard for me not to see the parallel with Israel as God's vineyard, with the promised land intended to be the new Eden. The people of Israel viewed entering the promised land as a hoped-for return to the Garden of Eden. Their rebellion against God, however, resulted in the land vomiting them out and God exiling His people. But... As when God exiled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, God did not stop pursuing the fulfillment of His plans and purposes. There will be no return to Eden. There never was supposed to be. However, God has sent His Son, Jesus, to repair what Adam and Eve broke, to succeed where the nation of Israel failed, and to bring into being a new creation, far surpassing the beauty and goodness of the original creation. Paul speaks to this in Galatians 4. He speaks of the present Jerusalem remaining to this day and to our day, not just Paul's day, but to our day. The present Jerusalem is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And that takes us to the larger theological significance of this greatest song. It not only poetically presents the mutual adoration of these two lovers, but it points forward to the union of Christ with the church, His corporate bride. Yes, yes, yes. This greatest song instructs us in the power of human sexuality. And it warns us of the dangers of misusing our sexuality. Yes, this greatest song upholds the hope and goodness of wonderful sexual intimacy within the context of marriage. But even more importantly, this greatest song points us toward celebrating and enjoying forever our union with Jesus Christ by faith. We can be citizens of the Jerusalem above, citizens of the new creation right now as we trust in Jesus, depending on Him for forgiveness, salvation, freedom, and eternal life. Does Jesus, the Good Shepherd, adore his bride the way the shepherd of the greatest song adored Shulamite? Yes, much more better indeed. He gave himself for us. He died for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he will present his bride to himself in splendor, spotless, holy, immaculate. Shulamite's beauty, as described by the shepherd, is a pale comparison with the beauty that we will embody when our bridegroom returns to give us our glorious resurrection bodies. <clears throat> Do you remember the angel's last invitation to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation? In Revelation 21.9, an angel said to John, Come! I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Do you remember what John then saw? Revelation 21, 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. 
its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. This is the Jerusalem above, Paul spoke of. The bride is the city. As Shulamite was repeatedly compared to the land of Israel, so it is that the bride of Christ is identified with the new Jerusalem. As perfect and awesome as the shepherd thought Shulamite was in this greatest song, how much more perfect and awesome will the bride of Christ be in all her resurrected splendor in the new creation? If you want to be part of that reality for eternity, make sure you're united to Jesus right now. I want to close with a reminder. If you were here for the singing time, we introduced a new song. And I want to just read some of the lyrics from this song called Jerusalem that we sang this morning by a group called City of Light. See him there upon the hill. Hear the scorn and laughter. Silent as a lamb, he waits, praying to the Father. See the king who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. See him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing. Dust that formed the watching crowds takes the blood of Jesus. Feel the earth is shaking now. See the veil is split in two. And he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. See the empty tomb today. Death could not contain him. Once the servant of the world, now in victory reigning, lift your voices to the one who is seated on the throne. See him in the new Jerusalem. Praise the one who saved us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for accomplishing our great salvation. Thank you for picturing it in the scriptures as a marriage something we could learn about, something we could even experience. We could watch in the, in the marriages around us and we could see a glimpse, a shadow of the reality that you have put in place for us, the great union, the great marriage of Jesus and the church. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you. We praise you, O oh Lord, for making all these things possible. We pray again, Father, for the marriages of our family here, our church family, that we would know the intimacy depicted in this greatest song. Father, would you help us to move toward each other? Help husbands pursue their wives. Help wives pursue and respond well to their husbands. Give grace. Give healing where there's brokenness. Give forgiveness where there's been sin. Thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient for all that ails us. And thank you, thank you, thank you that our Savior's death on the cross was sufficient to solve it all to fix what's been broken, and to bring in a new reality that we can all enjoy a taste of even now. And so I pray that you would grant that for our families, for our marriages, that we would get a taste of the real union with Jesus that we have by faith. Help us to live pursuing intimacy with our Lord and help us to look forward with deep hope no matter what happens around us, no matter what happens in our homes, in our families, in our bodies, would you help us to have our hope situated, fixed, firmly, cemented on that great resurrection to come. Thank you for these glorious promises. Thank you for living with us and walking with us to enable us to move in the right direction and to grow in our intimacy with each other and our intimacy with you. That's what we want, Father.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.